Welcome to the Free the Economy podcast. I'm your host, Richard Morrison. I'm a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and this is Episode 8 for February 16th, 2023. Free the Economy is about how we can all become happier, healthier, and wealthier in a world with less government control. We believe in a voluntary society where consent rather than force governs human interactions. And while the economy we have now offers many opportunities for financial success and self-fulfillment, we know that we can do even better. Reminder that you can always find our detailed show notes with links to all the stories we cover on the Competitive Enterprise Institute blog at cei.org slash blog. If you like the show, please leave us a review and follow us on Twitter at free the underscore economy. This week, we're going to start by covering several recent headlines and events you should know about, and then go on to an interview with Jennifer Schulp, Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. Now the headlines. We recently saw the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Philadelphia Eagles in Super Bowl 57, and while millions of Americans loved watching the excitement on the field, millions more tuned in to the halftime show and even just for the commercials. The big game is famously the, well, Super Bowl of broadcast advertising, with 30-second spots currently going for as much as $7 million. Some of the most famous ads in TV history were only ever broadcast a single time, but because that time was during the Super Bowl, their impact was huge. My colleague, Fred Smith, has never been much of a football fan, but he has a lot of theories about advertising and its role in society. He's written multiple times in Forbes and other venues about how widely seen TV ads, like the ones at the Super Bowl, can be harnessed as a major force in shaping society and especially the cultural attitudes toward a market economy. 2016, for example, he quoted the famous phrase attributed to corporate advertising pioneer John Wanamaker, quote, Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. Fred then goes on, writing, From my perspective, business leaders are correct to be worried about half of their marketing dollars going astray, but not necessarily in the way that Wanamaker meant. Traditional advertising focuses on increasing sales by getting consumer eyes on products and illustrating how those products advance the consumer's self-interest. However, in today's world, companies must concern themselves with how well they perform in two different worlds. The private self-interest world of consumers, where product reputation is key, but also the political, cultural value world of citizens, where how the public views a company's legitimacy is paramount. Selling your brand to consumers is unfortunately only half the equation. A company must also sell itself to citizens and the politicians they elect, with government regulations alone imposing some $2 trillion of costs on our economy every year, sustainable profitability requires that a firm's ads reach both audiences, end quote. Fred's insight that advertising shapes both consumer and citizen behavior is an important one. You might sell more cars by showing an adventurous driver roaring through the countryside on an off-road adventure. But that same ad might make the car industry in general more vulnerable to pressure from environmental and safety advocates if the behavior it showcases is seen by people outside the target demographic as destructive or potentially dangerous. Voters can be fickle and have a high capacity for cognitive dissonance. They can buy and use a popular product while also supporting calls to regulate and tax more heavily the industry that makes it. American manufacturers and retailers have great value propositions. They wouldn't be in business or able to afford Super Bowl ads if they didn't. But they also have to make the case that their products have moral legitimacy and meet valuable needs in society. Now, the Washington Post's Laura Riley recently raised uh, a consumer alarm with the St. Valentine's Day theme uh, on the merchandising trend called slack filling. She noted that the $7.99 heart-shaped box of candies that you pick up at your local grocery store or drugstore looks pretty large on the shelf. 
but these days might only contain, say, 11 actual candies instead of 15 or 16, with the rest of the box being filled up by a plastic spacing device. This is analogous to so-called shrinkflation, in which companies produce seemingly identical packages of a product, but downsize them slightly without announcing it, so that your $4 box of crackers is now 14.5 ounces instead of 16. Retail cost containment strategies like this are often attacked as nefarious plots by big companies to gouge consumers, but that outrage is pretty overplayed. In a world where costs inevitably rise and many consumers are stubbornly focused on top-line prices above all else, it's simply the least bad strategy for brands to stay competitive. Unless you think Russell Stover or General Mills have a secret method of making prices magically go down that they just refuse to use, there's going to need to be some adjustment to products over time. If sizes and volume counts don't move, the prices on the shelf tag will inevitably go up and people will complain about that even more. In a retail environment like the modern American supermarket, in which every box shows how many ounces it contains and virtually every store also calculates prices by unit, a quart, gram, or pound, it's trivially easy for consumers who really care to compare real prices. The actual problem, of course, is inflation itself, which, despite many conspiracy theories to the contrary, is a monetary phenomenon rather than an effect created by greedy corporations raising prices of their own accord. If the Federal Reserve in the United States prints more and more money, those dollars are going to be able to purchase fewer goods and services. It's an unavoidable relationship, and thousands of years of human governments that created their own money have repeatedly discovered this to their chagrin. So don't yell at your local egg farmer or candy retailer. Yell at Jerome Powell and the big spenders in Congress instead. Now, speaking of economic policy and big business, I had an article in National Review at the end of last week on the collision of politics and environmental, social, and governance, or ESG investing. Republicans in the House of Representatives, especially the new majority on the Financial Services Committee, are poised to confront what they've obviously decided are troubling trends in this area. I summarized where we're at for National Review, writing, Advocates advertise ESG as simply a smarter, more holistic, and more sustainable way to invest. But more and more people on the right have caught on and are beginning to understand that in practice, ESG functions to smuggle progressive policy goals into ostensibly non-political corporate decisions. Whether it's calls for an end to fossil fuels, diversity hiring mandates, support of abortion, or boycotting Israel, you'd be hard-pressed to find an ESG goal that doesn't fit neatly into a House Progressive Caucus policy memo. Because of that, several Republicans in Congress have recently made ESG a top issue, including members of the House Financial Services Committee, now chaired by Representative Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. I also mentioned that unlike in some previous fights where Republicans have been stereotyped as overly pro-business rather than being pro-average American, the dynamics here are actually reversed. The ESG skeptics are the ones trying to defend the retirement savings of regular Americans, while the ESG advocates are the ones defending trillion-dollar money managers like BlackRock. Republicans in Congress want to support U.S. jobs, while the Biden administration and Senate Democrats seem to want to kill off America's domestic oil and gas industry and let Saudi Arabia and Venezuela collect the spoils. Now, who do you think is going to win that debate? Finally, any analysis of this kind runs into the problem that Republicans are, of course, only in the majority of one House of Congress, so whatever they try to pass will likely get slapped down by a Democrat-controlled Senate. On issues like this, however, we've seen bipartisanship that has a current analog. 
There's a long history of Democrats, especially ones with a lot of blue-collar constituents, opposing environmental policy that would threaten American jobs. Former Energy and Commerce Committee Chairman John Dingell, Democrat of Michigan, for instance, was famously anathema to many environmental activists who derisively nicknamed him Tailpipe Johnny for opposing legislation that he rightly predicted would have put many of his Detroit-area autoworker constituents out of jobs. And we see a similar dynamic today with Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. He wrote to the Securities and Exchange Commission's chairman, Gary Gensler, last April, saying that he was deeply concerned about the SEC's climate disclosure rule, for example, and uh, just recently announced that he was joining 48 Republican senators in opposing a Department of Labor rule that would allow pension fund managers to incorporate non-financial ESG factors into investment decisions. These dynamics should make for a fascinating series of developments as we move more deeply into the 118th Congress. And now Siever Wang of the Breakthrough Institute has published a fascinating analysis recently on the need for more mining and resource development in order to fuel future expansion of renewable energy technology. We often hear that we're heading toward a decarbonized future and that everything from stovetops to cars are going to be electrified. It's usually justified on environmental grounds, of course, in particular reducing greenhouse gas emissions and their impact on climate change. In order to make the things associated with that transition, however, from windmill towers to the batteries and electric vehicles, we're going to need lots of additional mineral resources from copper to lithium to cobalt. And we're not going to be able to order all that from an Amazon warehouse. It's going to be need to be located by geologists and engineers dug up out of the earth by heavy machinery and the people who operate it, transported, smelted and refined and packed and shipped again to where it's actually needed. All of those steps are themselves energy intensive and high impact. And they're exactly the kinds of things that environmentalists have historically opposed. Wang cites a recent report on the future of lithium mining in particular that attempts to reckon with this issue. The authors warn about the environmental and social impact of expanded mining operations and suggest that instead of expanding mining to meet projected levels of demand for electric vehicles in the U.S., we reduce future demand for the vehicles themselves. Uh, the Breakthrough Institute's Wang summarizes this, writing... The study finds that a combination of highly ambitious migration of the U.S. population to medium-density communities, a shift to smaller EV batteries, aggressive battery recycling measures, and policy efforts to improve mass transit and incentivize biking and walking could reduce cumulative 2020 to 2050 lithium demand in U.S. light-duty vehicles by up to 66% and 2050 annual lithium demand by up to 92% relative to a status quo scenario. Now, that's an interesting alternative. Uh, and one government planners are no doubt excited to contemplate, but it's also one that's very troubling to anyone who likes the idea of being able to make their own lifestyle and consumption choices in order to achieve just this one specific goal, limiting the expansion of lithium mining and its associated impacts. We would need to change where 100 million Americans live, how they travel, how far they'd be able to go. Reports like this often talk in very vague terms about driving behavioral changes with various, quote, incentives. They're often also very vague about what kind of penalties would exist for those who decline to be so incentivized. Advocates of bicycle riding, for example, have predicted for decades that it's only a matter of time until large percentages of Americans give up their gas-guzzling automobiles and embrace the healthy and invigorating practice of cycling to work every day. Dozens of cities have spent billions of dollars over the past half century building bike paths, bike lanes, bike shares, and associated other cycling infrastructure. Yet the eager cycling hordes never quite seem to appear. In 2019, the U.S. Census Bureau estimated that a grand total of 0.6% of Americans bike to work, the same number as a similar report in 2014. 
Yet the kind of social change envisioned by people who want to minimize industrial activity, like mining, require a massive change in how Americans live and work and a dramatic increase in the number of people biking and walking to work in other locations. If building thousands of miles of bike trails and traffic lanes can't even bring the share of bike commuters up to 1% of Americans in 50 years, what kind of laws and regulations would be necessary to double or quadruple it in the next couple of decades? It's difficult to imagine a scenario short of totalitarian that would even come close. Americans love their cars and their mobility, not because they love tailpipe emissions, but because of the freedom and quality of life those vehicles allow them to have. Whatever environmental benefits we might want to chase in the future, activists and policymakers will need to understand that their fellow countrymen actually like and value owning their vehicles for their own sake and not indulge in the all-too-common theory that Americans only like driving and living in suburban communities because they've been tricked into it or because ExxonMobil and General Motors engaged in some sort of who-framed Roger Rabbit-style conspiracy to eliminate transit options in the 20th century. It's entirely possible that many more people will want to ditch their cars for bikes, trains, and buses in the future, but they should do so because they're making decisions about what they think will actually make their lives better, not because the vehicles they actually want to use have become outlawed or so highly taxed that only rich the rich can afford them. Now, those are the headlines for Episode 8. Now we'll move on to our interview with the Cato Institute's Jennifer Schulp. All right. Now I'd like to welcome uh, to the show uh, my friend Jennifer Schulp, Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. Welcome to Free the Economy, Jennifer. Thanks for having me on. Now, I should mention that uh, Jennifer and I recently ran into each other on the train going from Washington, D.C. up to New York City for uh, the National Review Institute Conference, Innovation and Growth and Their New Enemies. Uh, I like that title because it uh, reminded me of Virginia Parstrell's book, The Future and Its Enemies. Uh, Jennifer, what did you think of that conference? I thought the conference was an interesting take on kind of where we're at at this point. A uh, lot of different speakers tackling a lot of different topics from kind of thinking about how we think about workers, how we think about work to kind of the the more direct questions that I think about a little bit more. What does ESG mean for this? Um, and how do we think about kind of populism in the American right? Um, a lot of interesting ideas floating around that conference. I wish sometimes that we could talk in a little bit more detail than generalities. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, sometimes generalities are good for a big group of people. <laughs> I liked the uh, small business panel they had, uh, which included former small business administration administrator and wrestling impresario, Linda McMahon, and a former guest of this show, Alfredo Ortiz of the Job Creators Network. And so they talked about people you know, starting small businesses and then, you know, moving careers from being a worker, a salaried person to being a owner, you know, operator. And, and I think that uh, you've also had a fascinating career and uh, trajectory, um, you know, moving from the Department of Enforcement at FINRA, a financial regulator to the Cato Institute, a libertarian organization that is famously skeptical of some of the efforts of regulators. What has that journey been like for you? You know, it's been fun. Say, I was a practicing lawyer for many years. And before I was at FINRA in the Department of Enforcement, I was doing private practice. 
um, representing kind of a wide variety of individuals and companies, mostly on the defense side. Um, and your job in that circumstance is to find the best argument for your client. You want to be true to the law, so you want to be a zealous, accurate advocate. But your focus is on finding the best argument. When I moved to a financial regulator, um, my thought process was more trying to find the right answer rather than the best argument for why the regulator should win. Um, the mindset shifts a little bit, and I found that very freeing. But after a lot of years at the regulator, it became obvious to me that the best outcome isn't always the best because you're constrained by the ways in which the rules are already written. And those rules often don't lead to the best outcomes, which made me want to get more involved in shaping the rules and thinking about the policies that define how the rules should be put into place, hence the move to somewhere like Cato. And I've really enjoyed the ability to sit back and think about how we should organize the system in order to really get the best outcomes for everyone, rather than just the best outcomes that are within the rule set that we have already existing. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating because that reminds me of a, a conversation I had with a guy a year or two ago who was interested in these issues about you know financial regulation and corporate governance and things like that. He's a very experienced litigator. And when we were talking about some of the issues that we're going to be talking about today, I said, well, you know, really what you should have is you should have different rules. This should be different. That should be different. We should pass a new law to do this. And, you know, we should reform this regulation. And and he said, oh, that's really interesting because I spent all of my time figuring out how to work within the current system. Right. You have to, like, you know, defend each case based on the law that exists at the time. He's like, but you're out here just like changing the whole world in your mind. <laughs> and that's that's what I'm trying to do. Um it was very obvious. I thought that, you know, I was proud of the work that I did in enforcement as a regulator. I thought hard about whether an outcome was fair and whether an outcome was something that could be predicted by the regulated parties. Um, I thought about whether the, whether the, the punishment was just and whether the regulator should be bringing the case that it wants to bring. But when you got down to it, some of the rules just didn't make a lot of sense. And they could be predictable. The outcome could be just with that rule. But the rule wasn't doing anyone any favors. And it was not in my ability to say, well, we just should ignore that rule. <laughs> now I can advocate for changing the rules in a, I'll say, a more free way, mm -hmm. <laughs> in a lot of different ways. Not only am I more free to advocate to change the rules, I hope to make the rules more free as well. <laughs> but uh, it is a lot of lawyers tend to be in the mindset of let's get the right answer let's let's have the best outcome in the system that we have and sometimes a client will want to work outside the box and try to change the rule but as a lawyer you're usually only empowered to do what the client wants to do and being in a think tank being somewhere like cato really allows you to take into account more views on the subject and think about a broader solution than just the one that suits your particular client at any given time. Now, you recently testified for the Senate Banking Committee on uh, the uh, now now infamous uh, meltdown of uh, cryptocurrency exchange FTX and what's going on in the crypto world in general. And the thing that to me really stood out about that was 
you know, something you said at the very beginning, which is that what happened at FTX shouldn't necessarily be hung around the neck of every cryptocurrency or blockchain project. FTX is very high profile, but that doesn't mean that what went wrong there is something that would go wrong with every other cryptocurrency company out there. What what should we be learning from uh, you know, SBF and Caroline Ellison and those guys? I think the first lesson is kind of the one that you just highlighted, which is there are bad actors that can exist in the crypto world in as much as bad actors exist in the heavily regulated traditional financial world. Um, it's trite to kind of point out the Bernie Madoff example, but he's one of many financial frauds in industries that are highly regulated and no one disputes the applicability of the rules to them. So the first lesson is there are bad actors that exist and no amount of government regulation is going to prevent that type of activity from taking place somewhere in the ecosystem. So the second takeaway that I had from FTX um, was what I really tried to focus my testimony on in front of the Senate Banking Committee, which was, we really can't talk about crypto as if it's one thing and that everything in crypto is the same and presents the same risks. And crypto is this one monolith that we can just solve for by coming up with one set of rules or one proclamation. When we're thinking about FTX in particular, FTX was what's known as a centralized crypto exchange, mm -hmm. which looks a lot like centralized financial intermediaries that exist in the traditional financial world. There's somebody in the middle that takes the money, does the transactions, and you have to trust that person in the middle to do their job correctly. A lot of crypto is looking towards decentralization. And in the exchange space in particular, there are such things as decentralized exchanges where individuals interact through a software protocol in a much more peer-to-peer -peer manner where there is no individual in the middle that you have to trust to take the money or to hold the assets or to make the deals. And that's not risk-free but it presents very different risks than centralized crypto intermediaries do. And when we're looking to regulate or think about what regulation should look like in this space, it's really important to treat different things differently. Yeah, I guess the idea, and I, I feel like people who study government regulation a lot have sort of seen this before, where a new kind of novel challenge comes along and the, the question is, oh, well, here's this new thing in the economy. What do we do with it? How do we pass rules around it? How do we make customers safe? but all of the people who are making the policy are existing in the old world, right? And so if you've spent, you know, the, all the people who are experts now, who are, you know, known in their field, who have been, you know, doing their job for decades, they all grew up and live in the world of, you know, traditional banking or traditional asset management. And so if, if those people are making the rules for a new technology, it's very tempting for them to put the sort of, you know, round peg of crypto into the square hole of existing financial regulation in the idea. You know, some people in the space have said, like, well, why should we be regulating cryptocurrency with two statutes that were passed in 1933 and 1934, right? The, you know, the two Securities and Securities Exchange Act that created the SEC. You know, why should we go into to that paradigm 
for something that is supposed to be new and revolutionary. Right. And it's important to ask the question as to whether or not the principles that are in the 33 and 34 acts make sense when applied broadly. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So I'm not someone that says, yeah, just because it's a really old law, it might not apply to something new. But it's important to ask the question of whether it does make sense. Say in the crypto space, Jack Soloway, who's a colleague of mine, and I put out a paper thinking about how you apply the 1933 Act to crypto tokens. And I say it's going to sound like a very similar argument that I just made to centralized and decentralized with respect to exchanges. But similarly, in the token space, you have centralized projects and projects that are decentralized or are trying to centralize. Securities regulation was mainly put into place to kind of regulate the risks of a centralized party having asymmetrical info information about the, the business that investors might not know. So where you have a centralized party that's making promises about the investment or that has access to information that investors might not have, it, it's appropriate to apply the types of securities laws that already exist. But those don't make a lot of sense in the decentralized space where there is no entity in the middle that is serving that same purpose. So there, I don't think the 1933 Act should apply. Um, so it's important to stop and think again, crypto is not a monolith. There's a lot of different things happening in crypto. And sometimes the 33 Act, despite its age, might still have regulation that makes sense. But that's not a given. And we shouldn't be treating it like it is a given. I feel like there's sort of an analogy here to some of our friends who work in the telecom world, where you have, you know, the FCC was originally there to stop radio broadcasters from interfering with each other, right? You have a, a limited broadcast spectrum and only so many people can broadcast at a certain time without anyone sort of setting up blockaded parameters along that spectrum. Everyone would be trying to broadcast into everyone else's section of the spectrum and no one would be able to get their message out. But you know, there's people today who say, oh, well, the FCC should take on regulation of the Internet and all, you know, all these other every kind of mass media under the sun, because their analogy is, oh, well, they regulated an old type of mass media and they should regulate this new type of mass media because they should just regulate everything. But of course, the scarcity issue isn't there. The kind of structural, just a matter of physics, right, that they were taking on that sort of required them to do that at the beginning doesn't exist here. So you shouldn't just automatically roll that regulatory authority into every other kind of media without that sort right. of underlying necessity. Right. And in the security space, we hear it a lot when SEC Chair Gary Gensler kind of gives his sloppy explanation as to what the securities laws are for, where he describes it as they're there to protect people who want to make money. That, that's way too broad of a brush for what the securities laws exist to protect. They don't regulate every single time someone wants to make money with their money. So it's important to think about, A, the purpose of the agency, and B, what the laws that already exist and have given authority to that agency countenance, and not just assume that just because something looks vaguely like something that's already regulated, it makes sense to regulate it the same way. That's a good point. Now, 
here here on the show, Free the Economy, we try to connect some of these big picture economic and political issues to the concerns that regular Americans have day to day. And, you know, people see a headline in the news and they assume that it's only going to affect CEOs or billionaires, then they're probably not going to pay that much attention to it. What is the connection between finance regulations and congressional hearings and all that stuff and ordinary Americans trying to save for retirement? Oh, it's, I think it's a huge connection. And it depends on which part of financial regulation we're talking about, exactly where the connection is. But take, for example, something like crypto. Whether you are interested in saving for crypto for retirement or you just want to access kind of the crypto world. You want to use crypto to engage in faster, cheaper payments, or you're interested in crypto because you want to have, a, say, a digital native currency that you can use to transact in what, what we're calling Web3 these days, um, the, the, new, the new internet that, that's coming. These are everyday uses in the crypto space that if financial regulation doesn't approach this question correctly, um, it's unduly harsh, it's unduly uncertain, it prevents entrepreneurs from being able to raise money or to run their businesses. This type of, say, financial activity or really activity in the, the Web3 space, period, will find itself taking place all outside of American shores. Americans will have limited access to it potentially, but even if Americans don't have limited access because it's awfully hard to ban something like crypto, even if they don't have limited access, the kind of development in that space won't be taking place here. It'll be taking place somewhere else, attracting talent from American shores and attracting investment from American shores as well. And that's a problem for the entire economy, not just for people that are interested in dabbling in crypto themselves. But we kind of think about it more broadly, too, outside of the crypto space. So much of financial regulation, even when we're just talking about things like quote unquote, investor protection, whatever that is supposed to mean exactly, all comes down to being able to have the financial system allocate money to the businesses that have the best ideas, that are meeting consumer demand in the best ways. And where financial regulation is too restrictive, people are not able to start their businesses, to grow their businesses. They're not able to create jobs. And we don't see the economy as a whole function. Um, we don't have those jobs. We don't have those new inventions. We don't, we don't move forward. So financial regulation, getting it right, is I think one of the most important parts of kind of the regulatory scheme. Because with, with financial regulation that doesn't work, not much else is going to work either, including your retirement savings. You know, when we talk about capitalism and what, you know, what is capitalism versus any other economic system, you know, we often say like, oh, well, it just means that private parties are able to control, you know, money and goods and the factors of production. That just means that, you know, we can own factories and stores and, you know, unlike the Soviet Union where only, you know, the government owned everything. And 
So private ownership of capital is an important part of that, but it's not the only part, right? You need financial, a, a legal environment that protects property rights and adjudicates disputes and things like that so that that capital can flow and people's investments can be protected. And so I think that sort of goes to your, your point where you need a sort of financial regulatory system to the extent that it is like policing in courts, stopping people from stealing and, and, and uh, creating fraud. but Obviously, there's kind of an optimal point, right? And so if there's no financial regulation at all, you might have a lot of fraud. But if you have too much financial regulation, you stop capital formation, you stop investment, you stop new companies from being founded. So, you know, I, I think there's there's people who would say that we are not quite to the optimum point and they, they think we should have more financial regulation. I personally think we're probably far overshot that uh, point. But, you know, this comes up all the time. My you know, my colleague John Burlow has written a lot about sort of previous waves of financial regulation, like the Dodd-Frank Act that came out after, you know, around the time of the Great Recession, put more requirements on things like auditing big corporations. But he's also pointed out that there fewer companies have gone public since those greater burdens on public companies have been enacted. Companies wait far, far longer to go public than they used to. They used to go public when they're smaller, but that also meant more ordinary people like us, people who are not, you know, billion-dollar you know, uh, hedge fund or asset managers can't get in on those innovative new companies at the early stage, right? Because they wait till they're worth $10 billion before they go public, whereas Home Depot went public when I think they only had 12 stores or something like that, right? So that is, on the one hand, it's a, a big picture, big idea thing about what is what is regulation for, what is, what is capitalism for, but it's also a very specific thing where small-time investors don't get as good a chance to get in on the front end of new companies as they did probably 20 years ago. They don't. And in fact, I actually just testified about this in front of the subcommittee of the House Financial Services, um, who was, they were talking about reforming the accredited investor standard, which is exactly that rule that you you referenced there, that, that the non-wealthy don't have the same access to investing in non-public companies. And that's a big problem. Um, over time, we've seen fewer and fewer public companies, as you noted. They tend to be more mature when they come to market, so they're past their high growth phases. And we've seen additional kind of concentration in the stock market among the largest companies, so that there's less opportunity for diversification for in the public markets as well. Uh, the accredited investor standard really locks 90% of Americans out of investing in startups and other private companies who are potentially riskier um, because they're younger companies and they're still growing, but risk goes hand in hand with the potential for higher reward. And the problem with, I mean, there's a lot of problems with the accredited investor definition. Not only should the SEC not be telling people what they can and can't invest in with their own money, the, the lines that it draws really reinforce existing wealth gaps in American society. And that's not just the gap between the rich and the less wealthy. Um, the the accredited investor definition hurts a lot of minority populations who are on average less wealthy than white populations and hurts people who live in the middle of the country where salaries aren't as high. 
And it hurts not only their opportunities, like the individual investors' opportunities to get potentially higher risk, higher reward investments or different diversification opportunities. It hurts entrepreneurs in those communities as well from being able to turn to the people that they know best to be able to finance their operations. One of the women that testified at the same time that I did during that that hearing, um, Omi Bell, who's the founder of Black Girl Ventures, I think put it really well during her testimony when she said that if diversity is good for investment, it's good for investors too. And the accredited investor definition draws lines that make it impossible to have that type of diversity in our economy um, for both investors and entrepreneurs. So these, there's a lot of interrelated problems when financial regulation draws lines that, say, lock people out um, and prevent capital from being able to flow freely in a way that it, it would be able to do more so without these types of regulations. Yeah, and I was thinking about just, you know, we, of course, we just had the Super Bowl this weekend, that, you know, if you had more ordinary Americans who were uh, able to get into, you know, investing in new companies, I think we, we might have more companies that are like the Green Bay Packers, famously owned by uh, a large group of local shareholders, you know, in the town, they're very, uh, they're very proud of the fact that a lot of, a lot of local fans there, you know, season ticket holders, they're, they're shareholders in, in the Packers, as opposed to every other, virtually every other sports franchise, which is just owned by someone who is an, an already wealthy multi-billionaire buys a new franchise, which is the way most people have the sort of cliched view of finance in general, which is it's this game played by a tiny handful of extremely wealthy people. And that's the only, that's the only constituency that matters. And that would be less the case if government and financial regulation and investing rules uh, allowed more kind of ordinary Americans into the game. Yeah, I think that's true. And well, I don't think it's always a perfect analog. When I think about the Super Bowl, you know, I spent plenty of time watching every commercial for DraftKings that you could possibly see. There's a lot of people that are comfortable with risk looking for higher reward. Um, I think people need to be educated about risk reward and about the idea that not every bet is going to pay off. But you can see that there's plenty of people that are, that are happy to, to take a chance. And if we had opportunities for them to take a chance on their fellow Americans business in a better way, I think it's a better, it's a more productive use of money. And the focus should be on helping people to understand the risks understand the rewards and let them make the decisions about what they should do with their own money. Yeah. I mean, if people, if, if all the guys on the Wall Street Bet subreddit are willing to put their money into GameStop and AMC, I think they should be able to put their money into like a new uh, local startup. Well, we're, we're, we're heading to uh, the, the end of our time, but I really want to quickly get into to one thing that we've talked about in the past and that's another hot topic, which is environmental, social, and governance, ESG investing. So, uh, you wrote a fascinating article for Law and Liberty last uh, last year in December that I thought made a really interesting distinction, and that is before we talk about ESG, we need to distinguish ESG as a process and ESG as a product. What is the, the distinction there? So the distinction there is that ESG as a process refers to simply incorporating factors that might be E or S or G into a traditional risk return analysis. That 
is ESG basically, as we've always done, risk return. Um, it might not mean that all E is material or all S is material, but we're very familiar with figuring out how to determine whether or not something impacts a company's valuation or potential valuation at the end of the day. ESG as a product is kind of the, the newer version of ESG, where ESG is being sold as a means to change the world or to change company behavior. Um, investors are being asked to invest in ESG as a product in order to make the world greener or make the world more just. And I think that that's a very different type of investment. It's not as new as some people would like us to think. ESG um, is simply kind of in that vein, a new term for, for the broader concept of impact investing or socially responsible investing, all of which have been around for a long time. And it is not the case that impact investing leads to better returns. Um, impact investors are looking for different outcomes. And it's a different analysis when we think about how to incorporate ESG as a process versus ESG as a product. And conflating the two, I think, makes it very difficult to have the conversation about where regulation is appropriate, where regulation should focus, what type of regulation makes sense. We need to be very precise when we talk about ESG, something which has not been, uh, not been a priority for really anyone in the ESG space over the past decade or so. I would say precision is not the first word that comes to mind when I think about uh, ESG <laughs> metrics. Okay, really quick, there's a question about whether ESG is an issue or uh, I just sometimes call, say, politicized investing. People aren't familiar with that three letters. Is this going to be continue being a sort of hot button political issue? Because it has been the case, a few states in Texas and Florida, uh, ESG investing and, and sort of related topics have been pretty controversial. And with the Republicans coming back in the majority in the House, so you now have the Republicans with the you know the chairmanship of the majority of the House Financial Services Committee, and they will certainly have a lot to to say about the stuff going forward. And hottest hottest topic of all, noted ESG skeptic uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's the founder of Strive Asset Management, has strongly hinted that he is running for president at some point, um, if not in twenty twenty four. Is it is it too wonky of an issue to be really mainstream, or is it something that kind of regular Americans are going to get even more riled up about? So I wish it were too wonky of an issue because I think in actuality, it is a pretty wonky issue and that we need to be having a, a lot more of a kind of rational heat turned down conversation about it. I think it's going to remain a political hot topic in part because the, the concepts that we hear about in ES and G, particularly climate change and a lot of these social justice areas are hot political topics independently. And it's very easy to continue that conversation in the investing space where there's clear money involved. I would say there hasn't been a lot of interest in having the wonky discussion, I think. It's a lot easier to have the political discussion where um, folks on both sides of the aisle play up the the political aspects of the underlying designs in ESG in order to score political points, engage in the culture war. 
Um, and I think that that's, I think it's unfortunate because one of the beauties of, say, capitalism in this space is that investors should be free to make their own choices about how they want to invest. If they're interested in investing in an impact fund, they should be able to do that. And um, whether that impact fund is looking to, to take on right causes or left causes, it, it shouldn't make a difference. And a lot of this politicization has been aimed at trying to reduce choices writ large. And while I think that there are areas that we can focus on in ESG, there are a lot more wonkier topics that, that aren't going to get the, the interest of kind of the state legislature in Texas or the uh, political um, platform for a potential presidential nominee. <laughs> I wish we could turn the heat down and actually talk about some of the, the, the deeper issues that will allow, uh, allow choice to flourish if done correctly rather than limiting choice. That's great. I know that reminds me of one of my favorite alternate definition of those three letters. Now, former SEC Commissioner Elad Roisman said in the speech, ESG should stand for everybody stop grandstanding. <laughs> I completely agree. <laughs> All right, Jennifer, thank you so much for being uh, with us. This is a fantastic interview. And uh, just tell everyone, where can people find you and your writing and, and all your stuff? So all of my writing always appears on the Cato website, www.cato.org. But you can also follow me on Twitter at, at Jennifer J. Schulp. Um, also a lot of activity there. So thanks. A great, a great follow, by the way. <laughs> all right. Thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. That's our show for this week. This has been Episode 8 of Free the Economy. I'm your host, Richard Morrison. Our producers are Scooter Schaefer, Phoebe Gersten, and Ryan Krasinski. Our technical advisor is Ryan Lynch. Our intro music was designed by Alexei Gorobitz and Andrei Prochenko of Tiger Sound Production, and our logo was created by Helio and Vika of Scorpion 6. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week for Episode 9.